Linda, will you come lead us in prayer? I think some of you know that whenever I have read something that touches my heart, whether you like it or not, I like to share it with you. And so I'm going to read a Lenten prayer that I think I'm saying this right in the right order, that Reverend Dr. John Wakefield, who is a member of our church, I know his wife sings in the choir, Vicki. I don't know whether he does or not. He does. He does. He does. All right, he shared this prayer with us on that he wrote on Wednesday night uh, program during the Lenten season. And I have taken the liberty of changing from singular to plural. Jim, do you know? You understand. <laughs> yeah. okay. So I have taken that liberty. It's kind of long, Phil. Sorry about that. Okay. But I just thought, it, I could not believe that this was not some famous poet who wrote it. But Anyway, I'd love to share it with you. So if you'll bow your heads, please. Almighty God, keep ever before us the great crucifixion and glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Especially keep before us our sinful selves. Even more, Almighty God, Keep before us our need to confess to you our sin, for which we cannot of ourselves atone, and the necessity of our repentance. In even greater measure, keep before us your eternal love granted to us, your gracious forgiveness extended to us, and your glorious purpose for our days ahead. In this time of introspection, draw us nearer to our community of faith. In this time of reflection and healing, draw us outward as well to service on behalf of this broken world. O oh, Almighty God, through Holy Scripture, guide us beyond forgiveness toward lives lived for others. O oh, Almighty God, through your Holy Spirit, reveal to us your direction for the living of these days. And Almighty God, through contrition, repentance, and sacrifice, reveal to us your grace, extend to us your love, and create in us clean hearts. As we, in gratitude for the crucifixion of your Son, Jesus Christ, express our longing to serve, and with ever grateful hearts for the resurrection of Christ, express our willingness to embrace your transforming power. In the name of the victorious Lord and Savior, we pray, amen. amen.
Thank you, Linda, for sharing that. If you don't know John and Vicki, John, for a number of years, uh, taught at Milligan. Oh. Uh, he was, uh, directed our music program and uh, directed all our choirs there at Milligan. So uh, he's an accomplished musician and vocalist as well as a very thoughtful Christian. So thank you for sharing that. Well, it's good to be back. I have missed you all. Um, some of you don't, like, has he been gone? <laughs> yeah. So if you didn't know I was gone, I won't even ask you if you were here or not. I don't, yeah, I'm not, which is worse. Uh, you haven't been here for a month, or you were here and you didn't know that I was gone. Um, but I have been gone for a month. Uh, I'm grateful for all of those who pitched in and helped uh, teach uh, while I was gone. So I know Judy taught two lessons, and I think uh, Doug taught one, and then we heard from those who traveled uh, to Israel, I think, one week. So uh, thank you for that. Um, I was in Kenya for a little less than a month and just got back on Wednesday. Uh, so I'm still uh, trying to figure out what time zone I'm in. Uh, I haven't quite uh, got that figured out yet, but I'm getting there. And so uh, that's my excuse for this morning for being a little foggy-headed. Um, Kenya's seven hours ahead. And uh, so, and uh, yeah, I'm grateful I didn't have any trouble. Everything went fine on the trip. Um, 20 hours of flights on the way back. Uh, it's a lot of, lot of time in the plane, planes. Yeah, four different flights. Uh, two of them were eight hours. Um, but they went fine. I'm here, it's, a, it's still a marvel when you get on the plane with you know, nearly 500 other people and you think, how does this, one of these 747s, how does this thing get off the ground? I mean, I understand the physics, but still, it's such a wonder uh, every time and uh, to be able to travel what a privilege it is uh, to travel you know it's actually only a third of the way around the world not even quite a third uh, you think uh, it's yeah it's about 8,000 miles um, at least your go off the ground mine didn't even get started <laughs> well sorry for that yeah but I had a I had a good uh, three and a half weeks uh, in Kenya, uh, my friend uh, Kippy Lolius, who some of you have met because he's been here with me, um, went with me. He's still there. He come back. He's coming back this week. That's his home country, and um, we had a good time there. Uh, I may tell you more about it later. The short story is, um, I was doing some teaching in one of the theological <laughs> colleges there, uh, in a small town called Kapsawar. Um, and uh, there I was, um, Capsuar is best known for a mission hospital that's there that was established uh, quite a long time ago by the British and has been kind of a central focus for uh, healthcare in that part of uh, Africa. And right next door they built a theological college and uh, Muncie's got a connection to this, you may not know this, but I'll tell you now. Um, so I, I taught there, I taught the teachers for a week. Um, they, uh, we've worked really hard to establish um, 
indigenous teachers there. Um, and so they, they do all the teaching of their own students, but um, occasionally they bring in other people just to kind of help them be better teachers. So I ran a seminar for a week with the teachers, uh, trying to listen to them about what their struggles were with teaching and then putting together a kind of week-long seminar to kind of help us talk through some of their challenges uh, in teaching in their own uh, setting. And that's always uh, gratifying for me. I learn a lot about what it means to teach in a different context. But one of the highlights of our trip was, uh, you may remember, uh, it's been a little over two years actually. We began, well, we began collecting books a lot longer than this, but about two years ago we were going to ship uh, a, a cargo container of books uh, to Kenya for this new theological school in Kapsawar and also the school that I've taught in before that's called Kaolamani, which is in Eldoret. And um, a lot of the books came from Emmanuel uh, across the street from Milligan, the seminary there, but there were other places we collected books. And it turned out when we finally got uh, ready to ship them that we had nearly 40,000 oh, books. Wow. Uh, uh, about a 30-foot-long cargo container full of books, which was, as it turned out, a lot harder to get to Kenya than you might think. Um, the number of times that uh, God and or people of very good will had to intervene to make sure that those things got there. Um, we originally packed all the books one summer in a cargo container at Emmanuel and thought we were done, only to find out several months later that the Kenyan government had changed all their import uh, and customs restrictions and we're gonna insist that we unpack every single volume and catalog it depending on where it had been published and then it would be taxed according to which country it had been published in. So you can imagine what a nightmare that would be with 40,000 books that we had already safely packed away. So, yeah, long story short, they eventually sort of relented and said they would just sort of spot check uh, several of the boxes, but not all of them. But that delayed us for quite a while, uh, that whole process. But anyway, they eventually got over there uh, a month or two ago, and one of the, the highlights of the trip was a Sunday morning after uh, sort of four-hour service, we had a kind of celebration of uh, lots of people uh, from the area came and celebrated because it's going to be a theological library for uh, use for lots and lots of people in that part of Africa. And so lots of people came. And this class um, was largely responsible for helping uh, to get that cargo there. Uh, you can't ship 40,000 books for free. You might guess that. So uh, this class, whether you know it or not, uh, helped make that possible. So I'm grateful for that, and the people there are grateful for that. So I bring you not only their greetings, but their deep thanks, because that's going to have an impact uh, for generations, to see these pastors and teachers open up some of these boxes of books and see copies of books that they'd only heard about. Uh, they'd say, oh, I remember researching. I'd heard about this book. Um, they can't just sort of go on Amazon and order any book and have it delivered the next day to their doorstep like you and I can. So it's, they just don't have access to books. And so to just to imagine 
you know, having all these things that they've only heard about, uh, and lots of things they've never heard about, um, sort of delivered to them by people, you know, a third of the way around the world who'd never met them, was, was deeply moving to them, and they're, they're deeply grateful. So just wanted you to know that um, part of the, the joy of my trip was being able to uh, sort of be your representative there and uh, to send you, uh, to send them your greetings and also to bring back theirs to you uh, because they're quite aware this is going to have an enormous impact um, for, it's not hyperbole, for generations, I mean it really will. And so uh, that whole, uh, there just aren't theological libraries around there. And again, it's one of those things that's so easy to take for granted, just easy access to books. And um, so that, that was, uh, lots of other things happened, but that's a couple things that happened while I was gone and wanted you to know about. So, but I've missed you. Um, it's, it's good to be back. And um, for today, I'm going to just ruminate a little bit about uh, a passage of scripture that I was uh, ruminating on uh, while I was in Kenya, and I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, for those of you who have been like having sleepless nights uh, because you have no idea what our next series is going to be, yeah, I know a lot of you have sleepless nights, but I know it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> It's not going to start immediately. Um, it's probably going to be a month from now. Um, but the next series, when we get to it, I'm telling you a month ahead of time because you might need a month to get make your peace with it. Um, you know, when, when we took recommendations, you know, I don't know how long ago, it seems like several years ago now, about what you wanted to uh, uh, explore together during Sunday school. Uh, Walt and Lorraine said they would like us to take some time to look at the United Methodist social principles, which are part of the Book of Discipline. Some of you may not have ever heard of the Book of Discipline, so you don't know the Book of Discipline or the social principles within the Book of Discipline. Um, but you might be surprised to learn, and you probably will be surprised as we actually explore it, that in the United Methodist Book of Discipline, there's a section, it has been for a long, long time, called the Social Principles. That have been, that's part of what United Methodism, um, at least in principle, right, agrees to as how, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ bear on everyday life, including a lot of the challenges that our society or any society around the world wrestles with. And so, uh, these are, as you might be surprised, no you wouldn't be, uh, often contentious matters, but they're things that, that the United Methodist Church uh, has in writing as these are things we are committed to. And so, I don't know if you're committed to them or not. Um, how could you be if you didn't even know they were there? I mean, some of them you will be too because you've made those connections before and uh, they make perfectly good sense to you. Other places it might seem more difficult. So um, what we'll probably do uh, is I'll probably order some, for $4 you can get a little 70 page edition of this section of the uh, 
the social principles. I'll probably order a bunch of those and have them so you can look at them and read them and at least have a copy so that you know what, I mean, they're online, easily accessible, um, but for those of you who'd like to have like a, a, a little book you could look at, uh, I'll probably order some of those and um, make those available uh, to you. So that, that's what's coming. It's not right away. Um, I just wanted you to know that that's, that's going to be the next series when we get to it. Between now and then, um, because it's summertime and I know people are in and out um, even more than usual, we'll probably do um, some lessons that are a little more self-contained, like the one today. Although the one, yes, well. I hasten to add. Oh, please. That we still have trouble with them. Oh, yeah. Oh. We still have trouble with them. We do. And, um, and if, I, I don't know how much of news watchers you are. I mean, uh, one of the gifts that was given to me this week, I didn't know whether it was a gift I should open or not because I thought it might be a gift I'd rather not open. You know, sometimes when you open a gift, you wish you hadn't. Well, sometimes the news brings you a gift that you don't know if you want or not. So I've been planning this series for, you know, several months, but actually the United Methodist Social Principles made the news this week. So uh, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, go look it up. <laughs> See how curious you are. It's rare that the United Methodist uh, Book of Discipline and the Social Principles make the national news, but it did make the national news this week. Um, and I even heard about it in Kenya, so. Um, so, if you, so there you go. You can see uh, what you make of it. All right, but here, here's what I want to talk about today. Um, I don't know how many months ago it was. I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but it seems, again, my sense of time is all messed up these days. Um, it seemed like a year or two ago we were doing a series on uh, some of the images and metaphors for God. Anybody remember vaguely that series? It's not going not to have a test or anything, so you're, you're good. Um, but one of the metaphors uh, that's used for Jesus that we didn't talk about that sort of came to my mind pretty, uh, pretty clearly when I was in uh, Kenya because I was teaching at this college and also one Sunday I, I preached uh, two services, the first one in English, the second one in Swahili. I did have a translator. Um, yeah, my, my Swahili is pathetic. Um, which is always embarrassing when you, I was telling other people, when you go to a country like Kenya, which is very common, uh, there's 48 um, major uh, tribal peoples in Kenya, each of which has their own language. Uh, but they also have two national languages, English and Kiswahili. And so, which means most of the people that you meet who've had any education at all speak three languages pretty well. And so, it's always embarrassing to be, you know, the American in the place who tries to speak one. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's humbling. And um, so, but they were, the, the congregation that I was um, 
had been invited to preach at on one Sunday morning in the middle, one of the middle Sundays I was there. Um, it, it's church building is right next door to the theological college. And one of the first things I noticed when I got there, they were in the, they're in the process of building a new building, uh, a much larger <coughs> building that's supposed to serve the whole community. Won't go through the whole story there. Um, but one of the, as they were, they're mainly putting up pillars at this point. Um, they've got a foundation in the pillars, but um, they'll be soon putting up walls in the, in the coming months. And I got to, I got to thinking about uh, this passage in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, if you want to turn there, um, where Peter uses, uh, the more I thought about it, a kind of unusual image of, of Jesus, an unusual metaphor, uh, that actually, the more I started looking at it, seems to be one of his favorites. Um, and I think there might be a reason for that that we'll get to a little later. Um, but when we think about images of Jesus, I mean, a lot of them are things like, you know, the Good Shepherd or the Lamb of God and things like this. And here's Peter, one of Jesus' closest companions. And in the second chapter, he has this long extended reflection uh, of Jesus as a stone. Right? Jesus as a stone. Uh, different kinds of stone, a, a living stone, a rejected stone, a stumbling stone. Um, and he goes on to talk about, as we'll see, it's not just Jesus as a stone, but that, that we ourselves are stones. So I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a rock. Um, maybe you've been called a, you know, a blockhead or something in your life. It probably wasn't uh, something that you considered to be a compliment. Um, but Peter has this long extended kind of discussion that's rooted actually in an Old Testament psalm that's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 118, about Jesus being uh, the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders, but has now become the cornerstone of the building. Uh, this reflection in Psalm 18 is picked up a number of times, including by Jesus. Um, and so, as they were thinking about building this building, it got me thinking about God as a master builder. Um, and that Jesus is a stone uh, a living stone, right? Which is, again, hard for us to get our heads around. We don't think of stones being alive. Quite the contrary, we think of rocks and stones as being quite dead, inert. Um, but that Jesus is a living stone. So let's read First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and then let's just reflect on that briefly as a way of thinking a very different way a uh, very different image or metaphor. Um, as we said when we were doing that series, um, no one metaphor uh, can capture everything you want to say about Jesus or about God. God's inexhaustible. Um, and Jesus, as the purest reflection of God that we've ever had, um, we shouldn't be surprised that we can't. we need lots of different kinds of metaphors. And so different uh, different metaphors illuminate different things uh, about Jesus and the character of Jesus. 
So let's see what Peter has to say in this second chapter, and then let's reflect on that just a little bit. So this is 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10. Peter writes, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, quote, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. For those, who, But for those who do not believe, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. And a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now this letter that we call First Peter um, is one of those letters uh, that we believe were, were circulated to a number of churches. It didn't have a particular single destination like some of the letters we know of, right? Like we, the book of Ephesians, we think, was primarily aimed to the church at Ephesus. Uh, First Peter was uh, widely regarded to be a kind of circular letter that was sent uh, to the churches in Asia Minor, uh, primarily what we understand as the country of Turkey today. Um, so it would have been largely uh, Gentile territory. Um, you know the earliest Christians uh, were, were Jewish. Um, but the, now the gospel is moving out into Gentile territory, relatively distant from the sort of center in Jerusalem. And so Peter is writing uh, later in his life to those Gentile Christians who are under some degree of persecution. We don't know uh, all the kinds of persecutions or the character or nature of the persecution they were undergoing, but we know that they're beginning to have second thoughts, as you might guess they would. Here they're Gentiles, and they're following this crucified uh, Jewish itinerant preacher who people say has been resurrected from the dead. Um, but it's a pretty foreign thought world to them. Um, they don't have all this Jewish background, which makes it interesting that, that Peter uh, takes so much time to quote Old Testament scripture and use all these images from the Old Testament, which would have been unfamiliar to them. But he's, he's trying to encourage them uh, because they're wondering, like, 
okay, now why is it that we're following this Jewish guy? Because um, it's beginning, it's beginning to cost us something, and not just insignificant things. And so Peter's writing to try to remind them of what we might call the bigger picture of what, what, what is God doing in Jesus Christ. And here in the second chapter, he uses this image of God as the presumed uh, kind of master builder who is building what he calls a spiritual house. And all of us, all those who believe, including those uh, Christians, uh, early Christians in what was now Turkey, are being built into this spiritual house to which, of which, Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Now we don't build with stones much anymore um, because it's just so hard. Building with stones is really, really hard. It's a lot easier now just to kind of lay, lay a concrete foundation and, uh, you know, throw up walls and things, and it's, it's a lot easier than it used to be. But uh, stone used to be the primary way in which enormous buildings were built. And some of you, some of you have been to uh, Israel and other places, and you've seen the size of some of these stones that would have taken thousands of people to drag into place. Okay, it's, it's really quite amazing. And, uh, and some of these buildings are, I mean, that first stone, the cornerstone, um, clearly it's on one of the corners. <laughs> right? Hence, cornerstone. Right? Doesn't matter which corner that you put it on, but whatever corner you decide to start building, you understand the first stone you place, that every other stone is going to be in relationship to that stone. If you get that stone wrong, the whole building goes wrong. That stone's got to be square. Uh, it's got to be set plumb and level. Um, lots of you have laid brick, I'm sure. Um, and if you built a wall with brick and you know about keeping things square and plumb, I remember the first time I learned this was actually in Kenya, uh, not quite 10 years ago, where I was the apprentice assistant to the uh, brick mason. We were uh, building a library in a small town in the middle of nowhere. And so my job was just to do what he told me to do, right? But I learned a lot about um, you know, building with brick and making sure that the first corner you set's got to be right, or the whole building's just toast, right? And uh, it was interesting to watch this man work meticulously to make sure that first corner was level, it was square, it was plumb, uh, because otherwise, you know, the more the higher you build, the walls are either going to fall in or fall out. Uh, neither one of which is good. Um, so that, that first stone, uh, and again, sometimes these were massive. These could have weighed, you know, tens of thousands of pounds, okay, this first cornerstone. Uh, that's, that sets really the direction of the entire building. 
And this would have been a common trope, a common image for people of that day. And so Peter is using this, saying that Jesus, again, picking up on this language from Psalm 8, uh, 118, that Jesus, even though he was a stone that was rejected, was actually considered to be precious in God's eyes and was actually became the cornerstone of the building, the spiritual house that God is building. That's a powerful, powerful image, this, this very first stone that God sets. One thing that's lost in our current translation is that Peter actually, in a couple verses later, goes on to use a different word uh, that's not, it's a little ambiguous, but most people will actually think it means that Jesus is also the capstone. Uh, sometimes it's set, in some of your translations it will say it's the stone at the head of the corner. And people aren't sure if it's just another way of saying cornerstone. But it's probably actually the capstone, which was the final stone that you placed. Uh, and it was often in an arch, right? In an arch, the stone that you place at the top that holds the arch together uh, is, is the capstone. And it's, it's the last thing you do. And we still use that image <coughs> even in education, right? Uh, I have the privilege of teaching the course that's supposed to pull everything together at Milligan College regardless of major, and it's called Milligan's Capstone Course. Mm. Right? It's supposed to be the last thing that they learn before they leave that pulls, holds all the rest of their education together. So we still, still have that image, uh, even though we don't largely build with stone or build arches with capstones. So here Peter has this notion of Jesus as the first stone and the last stone. Sort of like the, the Alpha and the Omega, right? Seems quite appropriate. Um, but you don't have a building if you just have a cornerstone and a capstone. I mean, there's got to be a lot of other stones or you don't have much of a building. And so Peter goes on to say that, that each of us who believes right, uh, in this Jesus are ourselves living stones that God is building together into a single spiritual house. And if you let yourself sort of ponder, ruminate on that, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty humbling um, thing to think about. Um, I don't know, I know a lot of you have been to uh, some of the great cathedrals of, of Europe. Um, and you could stand outside one of those and you can kind of marvel at just the architectural wonder of these cathedrals, some of which took hundreds of years to build. So it's hard for us to get our heads around that that people would devote themselves to building something they would never see done, right? Uh, might take two or three hundred years to build, right? I mean, some of you know the National Cathedral here in the United States was just finished recently, right? Uh, the National Cathedral in the U.S. took over a hundred years to build, right? 
Um, it's, it's a remarkable thing to build a cathedral. And you can stand outside and look at any one of those stones and you think, well, what's that? You know, what's that? It's just a stone. And if you go to the great cathedrals today, I mean, because the, those stones have to be replaced every so often, a, a sort of ongoing schedule because they wear out. I mean, some of these things have been there for several hundred years and the stones eventually wear out and, they, and were replaced. So there's always stonemasons on the yard, right, replacing these. And, you know, if I think of my life as a little stone, like a little square, like a little brick, a little stone, I think like, what's that? Um, it looks like nothing. Um, but that, that's not the point. I mean, the point is God is building us together into the spiritual house. And it's not my job to think like, what good is this little stone of my life? What's that? Um, but someday, presumably, um, we'll get some different kind of perspective where you'll be able to stand back and see that you and I are part of something actually you know, breathtakingly astonishing that God has built out of us as living stones, right? With Jesus as the cornerstone. And my job is not like to figure out, um, I don't even have to, I don't even have to even place myself, right? That's not my job. The stone doesn't get to place itself. I mean, the master builder gets to put you in place. And when you're building with stone, that can happen a couple different ways. I mean, um, sometimes you can take a particular stone and you can see the spot you have and then you can shake the stone to fit it. That might mean knocking off some edges, you know, squaring it up. And, you know, a lot of us, I don't mean, I can't speak for you, but I've had to have a few of my rough edges knocked off here and there. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure I still have some. Right? Um, but presumably God is forming and shaping me uh, for a place. Um, and if you have a lot of stone, I mean, sometimes you can, uh, those of you who've seen like churches built out of river rock and things like that, uh, one of the amazing things there is, I mean, yeah, you, you are picking and choosing but if you got lots and lots of stones, you can always kind of find one. Like, well, this is close enough. I can make this one fit. Right. Uh, but all of that work, just to remind ourselves, is the master builder's job. Uh, it's not my job to figure out how you should fit in the building. That's not my job. Um, my job is not to figure out how exactly God is placing you in that building. That's the master builder's job. Um, my job is to allow myself to be shaped and formed and placed into this building that all of us together are bearing witness to the glory of God. As I was thinking about this over the last few weeks, I couldn't help but wonder if one of Peter's fascinations with this um, comes not just from the fact that Jesus uses this. Jesus tells the parable in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the, the vineyard 
and the tenants. I don't know if you know that parable. We won't rehearse the whole thing here. But Jesus tells the story of, a, of an owner of a vineyard. Um, and he goes away and he lets it out to tenants. Um, and then he sends his servants to go collect the produce from it and some of the profits from it. And they abuse and kill some of his servants. I think that's not very good tenants. And so he decides to send more and it does the same thing. So then he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And they do the same thing to him and end up killing him. Right now at the end of this parable, Jesus says, have you not heard that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And God, this is God's work and it is glorious in his sight. And then Peter actually uses that very same passage from Psalm 119 in Acts chapter 4 when he and John are hauled before the authorities for healing a man um, who was, that they healed, uh, who was lame from birth. And uh, they're thrown in jail. The next morning they're brought before the authorities. It's like, by whose name, by whose authority did you heal this man? And Peter says, well, you know, the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that you builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. And it's by his authority, this Jesus, that we healed him. And so Peter seems to have picked up on this language. And I also wonder, you know, if Peter doesn't also have a little bit of an affinity for this image. Uh, because you recall, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, right? Which means rock, right? Uh, he was named Simon, son of Jonah, and Peter got that Jesus renames him at the, at the, the good confession, right? Right, you'll be known as Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, right? And so Peter himself, seems to have understood himself as a kind of rock, as a kind of stone, but he didn't leave it there. He, he understood that Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone, and that we are living stones. And as I was thinking about this in Kenya, meeting with uh, Christians who I'd met before, who I was delighted to be uh, reconnected with, but many, many Christians who I'd never met before, and uh, most likely will never meet again. Um, and no doubt you will never meet. But yet to have this deep sense uh, that all of us, whether here at Muncie or in Capsawar or Eldoret or Sambalat or Nairobi or anywhere where there are people who claim the name of Jesus, that all of us, okay, all of us, there's not a, there's not a United Methodist spiritual house and uh, an Anglican spiritual house or an African inland church. They're not separate houses. They're just one spiritual house that's being built. And to feel that connection in a very real sense uh, that regardless of where we are across time and space, right? It's not just people around Kenya, but it's also we're being built into a house with Christians across generations, right? There's just one house. And if you just catch a glimpse of the glory of that, 
that I, that I get to be and you get to be um, what on one level is a fairly by itself a fairly insignificant living stone in this spiritual house and yet that spiritual house wouldn't be the spiritual house that it is apart from us we get to be part of that and it's extraordinary and it's humbling um, but it's also encouraging on the days when you think what's what's my life well by itself my life is surely not very much and yet God is building all of us together as living stones into a spiritual house to bear witness to the work of God in the world and God's own character. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we give you thanks that what draws us together here today is our trust in this cornerstone, this capstone, Jesus Christ. And that in this Jesus Christ, through this Jesus of Nazareth, you are building each of us a living stone into a spiritual house to your glory and your honor and to bear witness to who you are and your desires for all of creation. May we today catch just a glimpse of the glory of that and our place and role within it, within not only your worldwide church, but your church across history. May we be both humbled and encouraged that we have a place uh, in that spiritual house. Uh, may we uh, come to understand that place more clearly and live into it with more boldness and conviction. We pray this uh, through Jesus, the cornerstone, the capstone, the Alpha, and the Omega. Amen. Amen. Amen.